welcome to our next Medicine 360 podcast, where we'll continue to explore the medical humanities and arts, and today we'll be sticking to the theme of psychiatry and mental health. In particular, we'll be taking a look at the intrinsic links between lifestyle factors and mental well-being, and taking time to remember the importance of caring for caregivers and health and social care professionals, at a moment when it could not be more poignant. At the time of recording, we are approaching the end of May 2020 and remain in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. With all health and care organisations facing unprecedented challenges as they strive to protect patients, manage the major impact of rapid infection spread and communicate well with patients, families and colleagues, we explore the effect of the pressure and emotional trauma which may accompany caring roles and we look at the subsequent importance of being kind to oneself and achieving a lifestyle balance which can allow space to practice the arts of self-compassion and mindfulness. My name is Josie and I'll be hosting today's podcast on which our special guest is Jill Scott, a registered dietitian and nutrition consultant who combines her freelance career with a part-time role for Macmillan Cancer Support as development lead for people living with cancer. With over 30 years' experience in the fields of nutrition, health and well-being, Jill works with a range of organisations in which she leads the design and delivery of training programmes and resource development. I'm delighted to be able to welcome you to the podcast today, Jill, and I look forward to hearing what you've got to say about these topics. I'd just like to start, though, by really asking you, given the current uncertainty and the dramatic changes we all now face in our daily lives, how are you today and how have you been finding the recent months? Thanks, Josie, and uh, thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this uh, podcast. That's really uh, exciting for me, too. Um, In terms of how I am at the moment, it's, it's tough times for so many people and and yet I'm very grateful as well to um, be in a position that, you know, we've got a garden and able to kind of enjoy the outdoors. And I've just been for a lovely walk with my dog in the woods. And from a personal perspective, feeling quite grateful to have that fantastic weather at the moment and just when we need it most, really. But I'm very aware of how there's this background of anxiety and uncertainty all around us, which is quite hard to Absolutely, yes. I think we're all finding new things to be grateful for and realising that there are aspects of our lives which we perhaps took for granted before. Now, I'd like to start by asking a little bit more about what you do, in particular your role at Macmillan Cancer Support, which I know is quite varied and very interesting. Uh, Could you tell us what your job there usually involves and explain how aspects of your work focus on mental health and well-being? Yeah, so... I am part of uh, this learning and development function um, that has had a a really strong reputation and long-standing portfolio of fantastic education and training opportunities for health professionals um, and also the wider workforce. And depending on whether somebody is new to cancer or they've been working in that specialist field for a long time, so as an organisation, um, as I say, we've got a very strong uh, background in some well-evidenced uh, portfolio of, of education opportunities. And part of what we also do is um, obviously upskilling and looking at ways that we can support health professionals to support people living with cancer, because at the heart of 
everything that we do at Macmillan, it's about how we can support people living with cancer to live as well as they can. And so we've always uh, had a, this, this background in, in all of that work. Historically, we've worked um, really to, rather than have a sort of an individual um, offer for people living with cancer, really everything that we do is around supporting those who then work with people with cancer to give them the, the best support that they need. Uh, but currently, um, as you've alluded to, things are really difficult at the moment. And so what we've been doing is having to look at how we uh, have changed the way that we work. And so rather than having face-to-face training opportunities and uh, education events, we're move- we've moved much more to um, how we can support people online in response to the current pandemic. So... That's one of the things that I guess has been a big shift for us at the moment, and particularly looking at the health and well-being of Macmillan professionals and the wider workforce, as well as volunteers and anybody really who supports people living with cancer. So we've, although my role is is very much kind of looking after how we support people living with cancer, um, myself and um, colleagues are now in the sort of development role of looking at what the needs are at the moment and working on how we can support people to get through this difficult time with the work that they're doing uh, currently with with patients. So, um, yes, and most of the work that... Um, most of the, the need seems to be very much around supporting professionals with their health and well-being at the moment. So we've heard from colleagues on the ground and talking to... Um, you know, professionals themselves that, you know, they've been really struggling with this and looking to Macmillan for how we can support them the best way that we can. And that's what we're currently doing to get people through, help people get through this this sort of current crisis. Wow, so a really fascinating role you have there. And it's good to learn about how the present crisis has perhaps shifted the priorities of your work to some extent and maybe highlighted the additional support and guidance needed for staff at this moment, as well as, of course, the patients and their families. And I like what you've alluded to there about how people in a caring role still need to be cared for. I suppose this could be by others or by themselves too, and we'll be coming on to talk a little more about self-care later. But first, it sounds like you and your colleagues have been busy developing some really valuable resources in response to the current crisis. Could you tell us a little bit more about these? Yes, indeed. Um, certainly, in addition to kind of the, the things that we know people are always needing information around, uh, like palliative care, end of life care resources, and specific training around sort of cancer and its treatment, cancer awareness, etc. Um, we focus, my particular focus has been on some of the communication um, opportunities that we have and thinking about how we can support people to have effective communication in this really difficult time. But also um, specifically looking at um, health and well-being um, and particularly around sort of thinking about, we've been thinking about during during the lockdown period when over the last few weeks really, so sort of April and then May, we've been looking at how we can develop resources specifically to support health professionals who are maybe still uh, on the front line, but then also some of them might be uh, you know, looking after others at home or self-isolating. So we've tried to cover some of the broad brush um, generic support that, that we can offer them. 
Um, and it's, so sometimes it's practical resources around thinking about how you can just take a little bit of time out during your working day to take stock and think about how you can support yourself, whether that's just doing very short breathing, mindfulness of breathing, you know, three minute breathing exercise or just going and taking some time out to get some fresh air, that kind of thing. So thinking about having those sort of brief, brief moments on their own, uh, but also thinking about, you know, how we can signpost them to other resources that are online as well. So there's no point in us reinventing the wheel in the sense that there's lots and lots of really good resources already out there. And there's a lot of materials that have been developed specifically with uh, COVID-19 in in mind and supporting health professionals in particular so for example you know the mind website or mental health foundation psychology tools and of course the nhs themselves have um, developed a lot a range of tools as well and resources online so quite a lot of what we've been doing is also just looking at all the evidence base out there and signposting um, our professionals to those resources as well so it's much it's so if people come to the macmillan website they will find some specific guidance and practical tips that we've developed ourselves based on the evidence base, but also helping them to be, you know, look for other resources that might be out there that might be helpful as well. So quite a lot of, of working around many of those, those sort of things to start with, uh, sort of during that crisis phase. And then as time's moved on, we're now actively thinking about that I don't know how to describe it really. I suppose it's that sort of almost like a recovery phase or it's kind of moving on or easing out of that lockdown, which, you know, is, is kind of going to have a different focus, but obviously the themes are still similar. So it's what have people used or what have people found helpful during the crisis? And then, okay, what are the needs now? And, you know, what can we do to offer that support for for our professionals and the wider workforce really? And anybody who's in a supporting role for people living with cancer. So one of the things that we're doing is we've developed a Macmillan uh, wellbeing framework, which I suppose is a bit like a uh, thinking about a, a, a kind of wellbeing toolkit, if you like, um, which includes five different pillars. Uh, and those are covering topics such as resilience, uh, emotional wellbeing, personal growth and meaning, connection and physical wellbeing. And so... Currently, myself and colleagues are working uh, to develop topics within that, that that will hopefully offer some really good support for health professionals and uh, volunteers uh, going forward, really. Great. Yes, we'll touch on some of those topics you mentioned in describing the pillars there and just a little bit later. Firstly, though, I just wanted to say that I really liked what you described there as a recovery phase. I think it's probably quite an accurate description of what we'll be going to as measures start to ease. And I suppose it's almost the idea of the whole community or population at large sort of entering a form of rehabilitation as we prepare to introduce back into our lives some of those things we've had to sacrifice or change. And actually, what I suppose we hope could come of this is that there are actually some certain positive changes that might be made in these times which could stick with us. And a lot of the work that you and your team are doing and the resources you're producing will certainly have lasting benefits outside of this context and the relevance of it, relevance of it all definitely won't fade going forward. 
You also mentioned at the start of your response there about communication and about how there are new challenges which we are now facing with regard to communication. And it sounds like this is a specific area which could benefit from additional guidance and training as you are providing. Uh, it reminds me actually of the effects of wearing those necessary yet rather frustrating face masks were described in a recent article by Rachel Clark, a palliative care doctor. And I think her phrase was, Voices are muffled and smiles obscured. And similarly, there's a line in a poem about PPE on the Medicine 360 blog, in fact, uh, which is smiles relegated to the past. So perhaps smiles are one of those things that we took for granted before. I know that from working in hospital in this time myself, that I too have experienced how wearing a face mask can really hinder that ability to converse with and connect with a patient by hiding some of those nuances of expression and increasing the frequency of misunderstandings. So there are certainly some real difficulties there. And I'm just wondering what you've found from speaking to colleagues and healthcare professionals, what the main barriers are to effective communication now and how your work is helping people to overcome these. Well, you're absolutely right, JC. The the kind of communication is so important, especially at this time. And yet... There's fraught with difficulties and challenges currently and thinking specifically about the cancer workforce, people who have cancer are already vulnerable and for our health professionals, you know, having to have these very difficult conversations with with patients and their relatives uh, that could be around treatment options, delaying, you know, having treatment or surgery uh, or end of life discussions those kind of things that are really sensitive topics at the best of times and currently having to do those have those difficult conversations perhaps either as you say with a mask on or or full PPE even or maybe on the telephone which is again not something that you would maybe choose to do delivering bad news on the telephone is really difficult um so, you know, those kind of things present more challenge, you know, even more challenges than uh, than would normally be the case. And so and we've heard, definitely heard that from from uh, health professionals as well as our colleagues who, who work closely with them. So and also from patients, actually, who are saying this is really hard because, you know, we, we're, we're not able to have the, the same sort of level of of conversation that we would normally have with with their the nurse, the specialist or, or consultant. So, um, yeah, one of the things that we've we've certainly been doing is looking at the sort of communication and, you know, what's difficult at the moment and how can we provide some sort of tips and practical advice for, for maybe adapting what you, what you do in this current circumstances. So, you know, having to maybe communicate some bad news over you know through 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 PPE for example how important it is to then focus on on your own cues you know and non-verbal cues specifically so use, using eye contact or hand gestures things like that um, are really important but also like the tone of voice so to be really clear because of course some people um, may have be hard of hearing and that can be really difficult as well um, and then we've also just suggested that, you know, you might want to just put put your name, uh, attach your name badge or some sort of something that, that, that maybe just says who you are on the front of, of your overall so that people can see who you are. Um, 
And, you know, knowing that that's, a, that's, that's one aspect that's really difficult. But, but on the other hand, it's also wanting to make sure that some of the key elements of effective communication still stand. So, you know, that, you know, demonstrating, you know, the, skill, the skills of empathy and compassion are so important as well. So it's really important not to lose that, but being able to maybe be a little bit adapt what, how, how we communicate without losing the essence of the things that are really important as well. And that's what we've tried to do uh, or signpost them to other areas where they might get more support as well. Sounds like there are some really good initiatives there. And you're right, we're talking here about conversations which are already hard, even if we were to have the perfect setup. So to then be presented with these obstacles on top of what is already a challenge just makes it all the more difficult. And obviously for professionals, as they're having these conversations and sharing in the patient's experience of distress and suffering at times, we are aware of, and we've touched on it, the fact that this can have an impact on their own mental health and well-being. And there's some information on the Macmillan website, actually, in the section about emotional health and well-being support for professionals. And this section is about vicarious traumatisation, VT, which I hope you might be able to expand on for us, Jill. I know this is a concept which may sometimes be referred to as secondary traumatisation, and it's a topic which is discussed at length amongst psychiatrists and academics. But could you start by just telling us, Jill, a little bit more about what that term vicarious traumatisation means and how carers and health and social professionals might be able to recognise it in themselves should they be experiencing it? Yeah, well, so vicarious traumatisation, or or VT, as we said, it's a phenomenon that can impact anyone whose role involves, you know, supporting those that are that who are themselves experiencing emotional trauma and suffering. And anybody who's in a sort of helping role or sporting role, um, working with people that are vulnerable, makes makes you vulnerable as well. And what's really important, particularly at this time, is that people who are helpers are able to look after themselves as well in order for them to be able to support others and the vt is is a sort of specific phenomenon which is linked to empathy which of course is that emotional connection that that happens when somebody is able to who's supporting somebody else is able to kind of in a sense feel their pain or or can describe um or imagine what's going on for that other person and of course that sort of empathic connection is so important uh, at any time but of course particularly at the moment and we know that people living with cancer find that that sort of empathic connection that they often have with their specialist nurse or um, other helper you know doctor whoever it is that that's really really important to have that connection because it's a powerful element of comfort and support so although it's a key element of that and it's 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 not something that um you can just sort of switch off from. It's a natural uh, uh, characteristic that somebody might have and often helpers are drawn to, to that kind of role because they have that, that empathy and that ability to connect in that way. But of course, what we do know is that the, this empathic connection can also take a heavy toll on the helper over time when they've been exposed to helping somebody um, who's, who's currently going through some trauma themselves. So we've wanted to um, cover this really because the current pandemic is something that's 
that is a trauma for a lot of people, uh, not just for the patients experiencing that themselves, but obviously for those that are helping them. And so what we've done is we've joined up, um, joined forces with some um, accredited psychotherapists who have worked on producing a series of uh, videos for us and talking through some of the signs and, and things that people can do about that. So that's been a really important um, uh, resource that we've just developed uh, for our website. In terms of thinking about some of the signs that, that people might look out for, as you as you suggested, it's and you know so it, there are a number of different things that people might look out for. So it's things like that real sense of feeling useless or powerless in their job, or just finding that that lack of meaning to everything they do, and just that that increasing feeling of of disconnectedness. Um, isolating yourself from others, uh, lots of different things that, that may be signs and symptoms, and there's a whole array of those. Those are just, just some of them that I've mentioned. But what we'd, re- we'd say is that it's really important that if, if, if somebody recognises any of those, one of those or any of those in themselves, that it's really important to, A, to talk to somebody that they trust who can really listen and acknowledge what's going on. Um, so really to talk to somebody but also we would really recommend that they talk to their line manager as well because they will then know how to take that forward for support uh, for the individuals so we felt it was really important to highlight this as a as a potential issue and for something that 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 could could um, feature further down you know as people are sort of coming through this uh, as well so um, recognizing some of the signs and symptoms is going to be really important that's really interesting. VT is certainly something that's gaining increasing awareness, but it's intriguing that, as you described there, it's almost to some extent an, a natural side effect of empathy. And of course, like you say, empathy is a quality which is heavily encouraged in professionals in this field. So I suppose the emphasis really is on spotting if and when that empathy has led to a carer experiencing a personal impact of the pain of others in a way which is significantly affecting their well-being and their outlook. I know as a medical student, there's a lot more emphasis now on the importance of checking in with ourselves and our peers after any involvement in upsetting or distressing encounters or particularly traumatic cases in the hospital and other healthcare settings. And I suppose, as you said, the main message there is the value of talking to people and opening up to those that you trust about the emotions that these challenging roles can evoke. As well as this, though, of course, there is a lot of capacity for self-care and um I was hoping that you might be able to share with us some of the self-care tips that you and your team have put together for helping professionals to build resilience and to prevent or to recover from experiences of vicarious traumatisation, as we've been discussing here. Yes, and, and actually just to pick up on your your point about, um, you know, that, that one of the things that's been encouraged for you to do, and it's really good to hear this, is to sort of check in with yourself you know, and try to sort of think about what's happening, what, you know, how are you feeling, coming back to just where you are and the impact of something that you've just experienced and to, I suppose it's partly processing it as well, isn't it, at the time Um, and taking that time out to maybe recognise that actually that was really hard, you know, and and acknowledge that that, how hard something is and what you can do to support yourself in that time. And it's really good to hear that, you know, uh, in in medical school, you know, you're learning about that as well because as part of that, because you are being exposed to some some difficult things, and you know, and, and particularly now, some of the very you know new 
um, doctors coming through, just suddenly being faced with um, working on a COVID ward, which must be so hard to suddenly experience some some real difficulties uh, right at the beginning of your career. So um, really important there to, to be looking after yourself. Um, in terms of thinking about the sort of self-care tips and, and practical advice, yes, we do cover that in um, some of the resources. And um, I think I mentioned that the, the psychotherapists that we've been working with uh, have have been helping to put together some of this as well. So it, it is other the, some of the tips around self care are similar to what we'd say, as you say, for building resilience anyway. Um, but it's kind of that whole thing about um, looking after yourself in the moment as well, um, thinking about you know what's going to sustain me now, um, so that things don't build up to become really difficult. So taking time out to notice what's going on and how you're feeling, as we've said, sort of whether that is just having, you know, taking a couple of deep breaths on your own, you know, just taking that time out to do that. Um, We also recognise the importance of, you know, looking after yourself with with kindness. So thinking about what what do I need at the moment? You know, what is my self-care tip? You know, what can I do for myself uh, right now or at the end of my shift? Um, but actually somewhere th- making sure that you're thinking about the balance between the amount of time that individuals, the helpers, give to others and the time that you give to yourself. So making sure that that has some sense of balance. Um, and if it's not happening on a regular basis, you know, it's, it's important to be thinking about how can I build in some of those self-care tips for me during the day, in the moment, but also beyond as well. So when they're not working, you know, what else, what can I build into my life that's going to help me with my resilience? Exactly. It is absolutely essential and we can't underestimate how helpful it can be to have those pauses for checking in and, like you say, being kind. Of course, a lot of people in caring roles who might be vulnerable to the emotional impact of everything that they do in their job are incredibly kind individuals and they spread that kindness to everyone around them and it's what makes them so good in their role. Uh, But uh, alongside that, it's crucial to remember to be kind to yourself as well. Now, I know you know a lot on this topic, Jill, not least because you're just completing your teacher training in mindful self-compassion, so I'd like to just ask you a little bit more about it. Looking on your Nutrition Wellbeing website, where I can see that once everything's up and running again, post-lockdown, people can sign up to your courses in which you aim to introduce mindful self-compassion practices and help them to integrate these into their everyday life. And you include on the website one of the quotes from Dr. Christopher Germer. It really struck me, actually. He's um, one of the founders of the original Mindful Self-Compassion programs. And he says, a moment of self-compassion can change your entire day. A string of such moments can change the course of your life. I wonder, what do you consider, Jill, to be the main benefits of these practices for patients and professionals and just the public in general? Yeah, I love that quote as well from from Christopher Germer. Um, so powerful, and particularly in, in light of what we've been talking about in this podcast, actually, because, you know, it is that taking that moment out for yourself during the day, that one moment can be really helpful. But if you can build that up over a, you know, a lifetime the benefits are enormous and it is one of my own passions I guess it, it is 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 mindfulness and particularly the self-compassion and I'm, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about it really because I think it's 
been born from my own experience of of having a regular mindfulness practice. And that's really what I, I wanted to then go on to do the teacher training so that I could share some of the benefits with others. And if you look at the research, it's a, it's a huge, rapidly growing evidence base for the benefits um, of mindfulness, and particularly around the self-kindness element and compassion. And that seems to be becoming much more to the fore now as well. And, and I guess in terms of the, the, um, what we know about the evidence base is that it really does help people to cope with difficulties in their lives and to help with building resilience, as we've talked about um, in other ways as well. Um, and also things like, you know, improving mood and positive mind states such as connectedness, optimism, gratitude, things that we've talked about actually um, during the course of, of our discussion tonight. Uh, and I think it's the benefits are going to apply to everybody, really, whether they're patients health professionals and the general public um, because they're they're sort of because those those elements of kind of self-kindness and looking after yourself and understanding what your needs are, uh, are are going to benefit you whatever your role in life is and so there's so many opportunities I think out there too for people to have a go at perhaps trying some of the mindfulness uh, or ways of, of bringing mindfulness into your life. And as we said right at the start, actually, one of the things that might come out of this whole pandemic is that people may have had the opportunities to have a go at trying some, you know, little mindful moments or downloading apps and things, you know, on their phone and try just, just trying it out. And so I think that's, for me, is something that, I think I think some of the mindfulness can be really accessible for people now, and that's a, a, a really good thing. It's become a much more um, inclusive and accessible for everybody. So I think um, you know, encouraging people to at least have a go or be open minded to the possibilities that might come with being more mindful. Uh, and I guess I, I, um, thinking about mindfulness is not just about sitting and meditating for half an hour a day or whatever it might be, but it's thinking a bit broader that being mindful, you can have mindful moments, whatever you're doing, whether you're cooking a meal, having a shower, brushing your teeth, going for a walk, those kind of things as well. So it's kind of thinking about it in its broadest sense as well, um, you know, because those are the things that that can help us just to be in the moment or to be present. And that's a lot of it as well. It's just, yeah, be, taking those time out to, to be in the moment. And I think that links to all the things that we've talked about, actually, is taking that time out for yourself to be in the moment, whatever that might be. And that's that's quite an important element of it. And what I particularly like about the mindful self-compassion is it's sort of summed up by, you know, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff, who are the two founders of that programme, is, is around loving connected presence and that for me is just such a, a those three words you know it's just a lovely way of kind of thinking about about how how that approach can support you um so it's i think i think the benefits of it are that it encourages people to be uh you know, thinking thinking more about what they need, how they can be kind to themselves without judging their actions as well. And yeah, just to be open to possibilities of how things might 
might unfold and be be helpful. So one of the things that we've done on our website at the moment is to on the Macmillan website is to um, you know signpost to a lot of the the different apps that are out there, whether it's Headspace or Calm or um, Insight Timer, you know, as well as some of the more formal online opportunities and face to face opportunities that are out there around. Um, particularly the mindful self-compassion. And, and yeah, so um, I hope that people might try some of those little snippets that we've talked about to see whether they, they could help them. I mean, I, I would also acknowledge that not everybody, you know, does like to think about being, you know, doing the, undertaking some mindfulness. It's not for everyone. I suppose the other thing to say is, you know, we all have different ways of unwinding or relaxing and finding what works for us. And I think it's it's quite an individual thing. And I, I um, my own sort of personal view is you have to sort of want to to try it out and have an open mind to it um, for it to sort of maybe be supportive in that way. Absolutely, I agree. And you're right. All of these things which you talked about work in quite individual ways for each person. But whether or not a person identifies it as mindfulness as such, having those breathers in our day-to-day lives where we appreciate the current moment rather than just ploughing on ahead has an undeniable personal benefit and uh, subsequently has the potential to even benefit those around us. So following on from this, I'd like to finish by going back to the beginning of your career, actually, and your role as a dietitian, which I think must provide many good examples of that well-known close relationship between physical and mental health. So let me round off by asking you, what advice would you give about how to optimise our physical well-being in ways which may help us to have a healthy mind? Well, yes, I've always had a holistic approach to to health and particularly around those sort of mind body connections that we, we've just been talking about but I suppose all my career has been um, built on you know specifically thinking about nutrition and the role that diet plays in in overall health and well-being along with you know the physical activity every day maintaining a healthy weight and, and getting enough sleep so those kind of physical aspects of supporting our, our mental well-being are, are so important too. And I think thinking, linking about it, linking it with the current situation, you know, eating well, choosing to be active every day can, can give us some sort of sense of control when a lot of other things around us maybe are, are out of our control. So, you know, it's a, it, that, that's, and, it, and also it might have been an opportunity for people to try different things or to experiment with cooking and, and so on. Although, I, on the other hand, I know it can be challenging as well to be thinking about different things to, to cook and eat all the time. Maybe it's more of a focus. So my approach has always been to uh, work in an evidence, evidence-based practice. And I think the Public Health England's Eat Well guide is a really good starting point and a foundation around evidence-based health eating messages throughout the life course. So that's always been my starting point to encourage people to eat a, a balance of different foods and, and having a variety of different foods every day based on the Eat Well Guide because I think the Eat Well Plate because I think it really um, gives a good a good approach to balanced eating. So that's certainly you know what I would advise and recommend people do. Uh, making small changes, perhaps you know, to just encourage them to to make healthier choices when they can. 
And then similarly with physical activity, choosing what works works for individuals. And again, that that uh, they may have had opportunities during during this time actually to perhaps try some different things. And I hope people have managed to do that. But really to build in some physical activity into their everyday lives is so important. And of course, there's so much evidence around the benefits of physical activity and mental health um, that, you know, I think that whole combination of eating well and being active is so important. I suppose the other aspect, the other sort of little, uh, well, the thing that goes hand in hand with eating well and being physically activity is of course getting enough sleep and we know how important that is as well for mental well-being and that you know lots of people do struggle with with having a good night's sleep and of course there's lots of information advice and help out there about being you know making sure that you um have a good sleep sleep routine etc all the things that we talk about generally and there's lots of information on things like the sleep council website um, but there's also things like a, the Sleepio app, which is a specific evidence-based uh, um, program to help people to have a, uh, a better sleep. And I know at the moment, you know, that's free for health professionals as well. So there's quite a lot of practical guidance and things out there for, for special, uh, specialist, uh, you know, support for any of aspects of these. So, you know, really important that as well as, all the things that we've talked about that, that support uh, mental mental health, the we should we should really make sure that we think about and remember the physical side of that as well, because it's as say it's, it's about that holistic approach really to to overall well being that's so important. Fantastic, thanks for that, Jill. You've summed up really nicely there how our overall well being is the sum of so many aspects of our life. And with your interest in lifestyle behaviour change as well, you've mentioned that about making just small changes and perhaps this is the most realistic way for us to be able to improve our well-being, be it through focusing directly on our mental health by taking mindful moments as we brush our teeth or drink a cup of tea, or by starting with our physical health and trying out a new form of exercise or introducing more fresh foods to our diet, for example. And I think that's that remembering how closely our bodies and minds are connected is a really nice point to finish on. So let's go forth, remembering to look after them both and assigning them equal importance. And similarly, let's let this be a reminder to carers and to health and social care professionals out there that their well-being is, is as important as their patients and the focused, focus should be on being kind to everyone around you, but also to yourself. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Jill. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been a fascinating person to listen to and to discuss these topics with. And we've learned a lot of useful tips and received some really helpful signposting as well. Uh, Alongside this podcast, we will be providing the links to all those websites and resources which have been mentioned throughout. Uh, For now, though, thank you so much and wishing you all the best until we can meet again properly in person when measures allow. Oh, thanks so much, Josie. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Many thanks. Thank you for listening to this Medicine 360 podcast. From the team here, we wish you all well until the next time.